Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Danny Shapiro, and we're going to be talking about Still Writing, which is just out from Atlantic Monthly Press. This actually is not, strictly speaking, a memoir, but it does rely a lot on memoir-like reflection and presentation. So explain that to us a little bit, Danny. Sure, Ron, and thanks for having me. Still Writing is, in effect, my third memoir. If you had ever told me I was going to write more than one memoir after my first slow motion, I would I would have been sort of aghast. My second memoir, Devotion, was was a very different kind of memoir than the first. And then in Still Writing, I wanted to write a book about the process of sitting down to write, of what it takes, of what it means to approach the page every day as a practice. But I wasn't interested in it being a craft book, and I didn't want it to be simply a series of short essays about the process or meditations on craft. And the one way that I felt would create a kind of narrative arc to the book, book and a way of really holding it together, like the what I, what I say to my students are like the lily paths, you know, where, where, where's the reader going to land again and again and know that there is a story here. And it was in the memoiristic pieces that all had to do with what was formative for me as a writer. So that was my mandate. In the same way as in my memoir devotion, the mandate was, what is the spiritual lesson in this piece? If I couldn't figure it out, it didn't belong in there. In still writing, the mandate was, what is this piece of my childhood say? What does it have to do with what was formative of, of having become a writer? So that's where those memoiristic pieces came from. Right, because there is writing advice in here, but as you say, it's all filtered through the lens of your formative experiences and the things that you know through personal experience towards becoming a writer. Yes, I mean that and, and 20 years of teaching, I would say, that the advice, and I definitely didn't think of it as advice as I was writing, and I thought more as sort of, there's this beautiful quote of Jane Kenyon's where she talks about reaching out a hand to another, you know, that sort of the act of writing poems for her was reaching out a hand to another and saying, me too, by that gesture, you know, me too, I've been there too. That was really it for me, it was a feeling of wanting, wanting to reach out to writers everywhere and say, me too, and we're all in our solitary lives in this together in some way, and let me give you a book that will be a companion to you or a comfort to you on your journey. Was there a book for you like that before you started writing this one? I mean, what was your story? Yeah. No, there, 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 are, there are several books that I keep near me all the time. And uh, one is Annie Dillard's The Writing Life, which I just can open to absolutely any page and read a paragraph and my day will be better. And Virginia Woolf's uh, A Writer's Diary, which I actually only discovered in the last five years or so. And it's just... I treat it a little bit like the I Ching. I, I just I just open it. Like, what does Virginia Woolf have to offer today? And there's always something that is deeply relevant to my writing life in there. I remember when I was working on devotion, and there was and I was trying to figure out the structure. And I opened Virginia Woolf that day, and the line, "One longs for a device that is not a trick," just like sort of popped up out at me. And I thought, that's what I'm looking for. I'm, you know, I, I don't want anything. I don't want any trickery here. But I do need a device. Just things like that. So those books. And also Thomas Merton's On Solitude. I just keep on my desk like like talismans. I was struck by something that you say very early on in the book. As you're describing your impetus for, for doing this, you write that everything you need to know about life can be learned from a genuine and ongoing attempt to write. Yeah, that's something that I've come to realize is that the 
qualities that have allowed me to survive in life, I cultivated without knowing it for a long time through the ongoing sitting down five days a week. I mean, from the very beginning of my writer's life, it was Monday through Friday, like banker's hours. There was something in that that was very comforting to me. This is a job and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do my job and I'm going to take weekends off unless I'm completely obsessed and or finishing something or on a deadline. But that kind of dailiness and doggedness and the persistence and the overcoming rejection almost on a daily basis. I mean, writers are rejected daily in some way or another. And learning how to withstand that, whether it's a review or it's a magazine saying no to a story or it's a toxic online comment, there's always something there to sting you. And that feeling of this beautiful word that the editor Ted Salatarov first coined, I think, I'm not even sure it's a real word, but endurability, the ability to endure. I learned that on the page. And whatever I know about the ability to do that in life through the ups and downs, the vicissitudes, all of that began, like, like that's really my, that's my temple. Right. And you go so far as to say a little bit later in the book that what you know from the last couple of decades learning about yourself through writing is that if you're not writing, you're actually not well, yes. you're feeling well. Yeah, that is, it feels like a medicine to me, you know, by which I don't mean that it feels good while I'm doing it, you know, or that it's cathartic. I always struggle with the idea of writing as catharsis. I mean, I think it can be, but recently I've, I've, I've come when I think about teaching to the idea that there are two different kinds of teaching writing. There's helping people to learn how to get it down and then helping people learn how to get it right. And, and you may have to get it down before you can get it right, but the struggle to get it right is absorbing and frustrating and painful. And it's also thrilling when, you know, so you've hit a moment where you're, you're, you're kind of in this, you're riding a wave, you're actually kind of in there. But that feeling of when I'm not doing that, I actually don't really know what it is I'm thinking and feeling and understanding. There, there's this beautiful quote from Joan Didion from this speech that she gave that was then printed as an essay called Why I Write, where she, she says, if I had even the remotest access to my conscious mind, I never would have become a writer. I write in order to know what it is I feel what I think, what I believe, what I fear. Um, even now, when I reread something that I've written, I, I essentially look at it and think, oh, yeah, that's what I think. That's what I feel. I think most of us share that feeling. The idea that this is somehow cathartic or healing, the, the process of writing it out, it doesn't sound like, say, writing slow motion solved the problem of your relationship with your parents. Even after the fact, you write, and I've certainly heard other writers talk about going back and looking at their earliest published work and, you know, wincing at some of the choices that they made that they never would have made if they had been given the same opportunity this many years later. Yes. Well, my, my earliest published work was my graduate thesis at Sarah Lawrence. It was my first novel. And I'm embarrassed. I mean, I... When somebody tells me that they've read it, even if they're telling me in a flattering way that they read it and they like it, I just completely, it's, it's, it's cringeworthy. And as, as is true of my second novel, I was learning how to write in public and I wouldn't change any of it because there were tremendous lessons in learning how to write in public for me. I ended up having to overcome my early career 
Jennifer Egan is a very good friend of mine, and we had sort of opposite beginnings of our career. She waited, you know, she she just worked in a quiet, careful, very mature for someone that young, you know, didn't rush things. Hannah Tinty is another person who's who did that. She was a student of mine, and I watched her wait years before she was ready to bring out a story collection. And I, when I was in graduate school, I was very impatient. I felt like I had a lot to prove to everyone and to myself and to my dead father and to my mother who was in the hospital and, you know, to just all the ways that I sort of messed up. And I, and so in bringing out those early books, it appeared like I was, like my writing life had really kind of gotten off to a great start. And, you know, people in graduate school could, could barely look at me. They were so annoyed that I had sold the first book while I was still there. But in retrospect, I would say that like the beginning of my really being able to be, to harness my material rather than have my material kind of run roughshod all over me really began with writing slow motion. And I had this feeling when I started slow motion, it was going to be a dividing line like that. Like, like that I had been, I actually like my third novel somewhat, so it doesn't, but it's, but it's still, I wasn't in charge. And it's such tricky territory as a, as a fiction writer. What, what does it mean to be in charge? You have to be both in charge and allow things to happen. But I think I was allowing too much to happen and not the, the, you know, the dog was walking the owner and the owner wasn't walking the dog. And I'm sure that you know, a tricky point of coming up with a game changer like slow motion for you is that by that time, the industry has a certain expectation of you and is not necessarily equipped for any writer to change their literary identity in that way. Yes, this is something I think about so much because when slow motion came out, my publisher, I don't think, had very high expectations for it to the point where all of this stuff was happening. There was a full page in Newsweek. There was Mary Cantwell wrote about it in Vogue, a full page. The New Yorker had just run uh, a personal history piece by me. The first serial for slow motion was in Granta, and the second serial was in Cosmo. I mean, that's how crazy, bifurcated, you know, split-screen the whole thing was. But my publisher hadn't printed enough books, and within a few days of the book coming out, there were no books in the stores. No books. And it was in the days when books didn't get replenished in an instant. It, It took a couple of weeks for books to be back in the stores, at which point the public recollection of all of that great attention and great press is kind of gone. But at the same time, critically, it really was a dividing line. Suddenly, the Times Book Review, which hadn't paid attention to my work particularly, gave me major review attention, and and everything everything started to shift. But I didn't do it to create that shift. I did it because that was the book that absolutely announced itself as needing to be written. That, 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 that I needed to write that book and that the only way that I could move forward and write more mature books was to tackle that particular piece of my life as a true story. In fact, on the hardcover of Slow Motion, it says um, a true story rather than memoir. And for some reason, I wanted that. I wanted that language. I wanted to try to tell the story that I had tried to write in my first novel as fiction and sort of had made a structural mess of things. I, you know, I was getting a second chance to do that in memoir. Part of that being the story that you need to tell then, you know, there's a, a line in still writing, pain engraves a deeper memory. Mm-hmm. And just that sense that it's like, these are the things that that stick with you, that 
that nest within you and don't take their hooks out of you emotionally or as a writer. Yeah, and I don't, and I don't think that writing memoir dispenses with that in any way. I, when slow motion was coming out and this word catharsis was getting used a lot, I struck up a um, email friendship with Michael Gilmore, and um, and I loved his memoir about his brother, uh, Shot in the Heart, and it was a very painful story. His brother was Gary Gilmore, and and I wrote to Michael and I said, people are using this catharsis word. Do you feel like it's this was was writing Shot in the Heart cathartic? And he wrote back and he said, no, if anything, it embeds your story more deeply in you. And that felt true to me, but I didn't understand it for a long time. And what I finally understood about it recently was that what it means is that the story becomes frozen in time. The, the story that I told in slow motion, if I were to write that story now, it would be a different book. It was me at that moment in my early 30s writing about that moment in my early 20s. The relationship between the teller and the tale is the tale in memoir. I thought it would be a really interesting exercise for someone to spend their entire life writing the same book every 10 years, because it would be a different book every 10 years. And so it embeds that story. That was that moment. And it wouldn't be that book if I hadn't told it at that moment. One of the things that was interesting in your description of writing slow motion and devotion, you know, the two memoirs that you've done before, is... But it was your husband, Michael, who pointed out to you the ways in which you address what I guess we might call the central traumas of each story, pointing out that when you're talking about your parents' accident or your son's infant illness, that your language became very telegraphic and very blunt, as if even in the process of confronting these things, you were still resisting confronting these things. Yes, I mean, that, that was that was a really revelatory moment, because I think I think it's, it's also true in in life that we, or it's certainly true in life, and it needs to not be true on the page that when we're dealing with transmitting information about something that's really hard, we find the language that transmits it in the way that costs us the least. And for me. I mean, I really don't know whether my mother had 80 broken bones. She might have had 79. She might have had 82. But it became 80 broken bones. So that when I would be making a new friend or be in the middle of an interview or telling the story for whatever reason of my parents' accident, I would say my father died and my mother had 80 broken bones. And it wouldn't cost me anything because it would be like just slipping past using language that's just like a skid. I think that's probably fine in life. We all need to sort of get through telling these stories in whatever way we can, if we need to. But on the page, especially because it was something that I would revisit, I needed to revisit it anew each time. Right. It's like that language is the scar that forms over exactly. that wound. And your job as a memoirist is to continue to keep poking at that scar. That's right. Yeah. And that's that's beautifully put. And I think, you know, I, I, I practice a lot of yoga. And in yoga, there's this Sanskrit word, samskara, that one of the translations loosely is like scarring. And the idea that our stories live in our bodies and they're like scars. Yes, it's the job of the memoirist to, to keep poking. And, you know, these are, these are they, because they don't go away, they are the gift that keeps on giving. They are where our obsessions form. I would have said when I wrote Slow Motion, I'm done with my parents. I'm not going to write about them anymore. But then 
However many years later, when I started to write devotion, the realization that there was more, there was another level, there was another layer to go. You mentioned your yoga practice just now, and that's something that comes up here and there and still writing as well. I'm wondering what sort of things that you've learned in your yoga practice would you say have carried over into your writing life most effectively? It's a great question. I have two different responses. My first response is that my yoga practice feels like a tool in service of the writing. It is the only thing that I know that is remotely healthy that will stop the noise in my mind if I've allowed the noise in my mind to really accumulate over the course of a morning, over the course of a day, when I've spent too much time on the internet, when I've, you know, when my head just feels just rattled and not clear and not in any way sort of smooth like the surface of a lake, I can unroll my mat and do my yoga practice. And by the end of that hour, that lake will be smooth again. So to have that as a tool, I mean, I think it's a lot of why writers traditionally or stereotypically drink a lot. You know, it's like, you know, well, I could have a big tumbler of scotch in the middle of the day, or I could unroll my yoga mat and then come back to my desk an hour later. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part is that in that quiet, it's like ideas, maybe it's the samskaras, the scar tissue, but ideas arise, thoughts arise, solutions arise. If I'm really chewing on something that I don't know how to solve, a great way to maybe just take a break and see what emerges instead of straining is in practicing yoga. But there are a million other ways. Uh, driving, it happens a lot for me too when I'm behind the wheel of my car. If if things are quiet and I'm just driving or I, I, I write and still writing, Grace Paley took, you know, she used to say to us when, when, when I was a student of hers that she would write in the bathtub. And I later realized she meant she took baths. She wasn't actually scribbling in the suds. That meditative process you know, there's this idea in meditation that you're supposed to let your mind go blank and be thinking about nothing. And of course, that's an impossibility. But what you can do and, and what you end up doing is you're at least able to keep track and notice the things that you're actually thinking in a way that a lot of times thoughts just run through our head and, and we, we don't pay attention and we lose them. Yes. And, and here you, you get to, to well, seize onto them. You're cultivating the mind that is watching the mind. I've been driving around in my car a lot lately listening to this really amazing dialogue between the Buddhist Jack Cornfield and this neurobiologist named Dr. Dan Siegel. And they talk a lot about meditation and the way that there is the observing mind. There are the thoughts, but then there's the observer of the thoughts. Who's the observer? You know, and which is just sort of fascinating. Like, what is the mechanism by which we catch the fact that we're just spinning off in the chatter? And I think that there is some correlation between that observing mind and the mind that sits and writes. Because the chattering mind isn't, isn't sitting and writing. In cultivating the watching mind to observe your own writing practice, what was the biggest discovery that you made about your process? as you were writing, still writing? I think it might be the very thing that you brought up earlier, which is the familiarity of language and the, you know, the, the sort of like a meta situation of, you know, writing a book about writing, thinking about writing and writing about writing. And I also had an editor that was extre an extremely close editor 
of sentences, uh, which is something that I had never had before. That was an incredible learning process, too, because because it was a book about writing, there was never a kind of being carried away in any direction. I wasn't telling a story, per se. And because of the way that it's structured as these pieces, as these stepping stones, the sentences become, I mean, it's really, it's a book that is about the sentences. And so I think it did something probably very important for my language moving forward. I had this feeling in each of my memoirs and each of these breaks from fiction, which I no longer can think of them as because now I'm, I'm heading towards having written almost as much nonfiction as fiction, but as being dividing lines. I really think that slow motion truly ended up being that dividing line, and I think devotion did too. And having written devotion and still writing back to back, I think that when I return to fiction, I can feel it already. I feel it in what I'm interested in reading, and I feel it in, in, the, in some of the short fiction that I've written. There is a different quality to the sentences. So it sounds like fiction is the direction that you're headed in for the time being? You know, I'm not sure. I have a story coming out in Electric Lit next week, and that pleases me no end, because I just feel like it's been a while since I've had fiction out there. But I find myself drawn to these hybrid forms, books that blur the boundaries. And I, I, I just reread Elizabeth Hardwick's Sleepless Nights, which is a book that I just love so much. And... It's fiction, but part of it was published in the New York Review of Books as memoir when it was first, when she was first writing this material in the 1970s. It was a very exciting kind of, you know, what what is the gray area? I, I think probably when I return, it's going to be in a hybrid form. There's material in my own family's history that interests me a lot, but that has always felt to me like I, it didn't want to be a historical novel. Mm -hmm. So I'm not exactly sure what it wants to be, but I think... It can't be straight nonfiction, and it can't be entirely fiction either. So, And that's a question, too, in terms of... I was thinking that certainly everything that you've learned about your writing process here, there are ways that it would be applicable the next time that you went on into a, a immersive memoir writing project, like slow motion or devotion. But at the same time, in writing memoir, you also have to find the things that as, as you've discussed earlier, are engraved deeply enough in you to that be the story to tell. Yes, and I, I was a little superstitious when embarking on still writing about this idea of staring too closely on what's, uh, at, at what's formative, the same way as you know some writers have a certain leeriness about, like, on-the-couch, five-day-a-week psychoanalysis, and sort of, like, how much do we want to know? I mean, how much do we really want to un unpack our obsessions and put a magnifying mirror up to them and really stare at them? I think I needn't have worried, because you can stare all you want, but at a certain point, there is a kind of falling away of another layer and a seeing of something in a new way, in a deeper way, precisely because one's seeing it from a different vantage point on this spiral of life that we're on. And so I don't think it left me feeling either settled or more self-conscious about continuing to explore, to mine the personal in an attempt to create something universal. Well, it sounds like we'll have plenty of fiction and nonfiction both to look forward to from you in the future. In the meantime, Danny Shapiro has just written Still Writing. It's a combination of memoir and personal reflection and reflection on the writing craft that is more than simply a, a self-help book or a creative writing handbook, it's really worth plunging into, and I hope that you will check it out. 
I'm Ron Hogan, and you've been listening to Life Stories, and I'll look forward to joining you on another podcast soon. Thank you.